the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a series within a series within a series. Meet the Holy Spirit. Today, character-producing Holy Spirit. Next on Truth For Today. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Hi there. Welcome. This is Truth For Today. Pastor Phil Howard takes us back once again to God's Word as we continue our series, Meet Your God, specifically the Holy Spirit. And today we're continuing a sub-series within that sub-series called The Marks of a Spirit-Filled Church. One of those marks, character. Yeah, we get character produced within us if we are captivated by the Spirit of God. Let's learn more, shall we? Here's Pastor Phil Howard and today's broadcast of Truth For Today. We started dealing with what the Spirit-filled church looks like. We dealt with that several weeks ago, what it looks like in its corporate life. You know, when God saved you, He didn't save you as an isolated individual. He saved you to be a part of a corporate community called the church. And one of the great battles some believers have is they're so independent by nature and so isolated, they are never mature and they're not effective. And so you find out that the Christian life, part of its dynamic, is how we function together as a corporate body, submitting, loving, forbearing, long-suffering. You see, you've got to have other people in your life to ever demonstrate that fruit and that attitude. Well, the second thing we want to look at is spirit-produced character, character in the Christian life. We're going to take a journey. I'm going to walk you through Scripture and basically try to do what I did last Sunday night. But we've given you a set of notes, and there's another part to these notes that we'll look at next week. Last week, I did this plus the other six pages, so it was explodo night, of which... Little was maybe retained. So we're going back. And what I'm going to do, uh, we're going to move quick here. I'm going to get you in the Bible. And I'm going to, uh, you follow me in this outline because I'm not going to be just following it. I'm going to get in the Bible. And uh, let me say some things to you about the Christian life. Uh, A lot of people are straight on this. And this is what you hear. Uh, I got saved back here in 1965, let's say. I'm sure I'm saved. Big on that. Now, let me tell you, there's two kinds of people, and I see two kinds of attitudes about getting saved. Uh, Let me tell you what was exciting being a Pentecostal in background. What's exciting is you hear this. I got forgiven, I got placed into the family, and now there's more to come. 
There's more to come. And so I've got saved to become a seeker. I'm seeking the gifts. I'm seeking spirit filling. I, I may be seeking all these different things, but the dynamic was I've been saved from this life, and now I'm seeking all these other uh, things that are supposed to come with it, and you started a, a journey. Now, it was exciting on one hand, frustrating on the other. Frustrating to those people that didn't seem to keep landing at these benchmarks of what was called power, certain gifts, tongues maybe, uh, whatever. Different kinds of, every group seemed to have its own marks of spirituality. And so you kind of like that, especially if you were able to meet all the marks. Now, I grew up with some people, been Pentecostals all their life, and never talked in tongues. But they're deacons in Pentecostal churches. They're this frustrated all their life on one hand, side because they never quite got all the things they were supposed to get. Now, that's one, that's one scenario. Let me tell you another scenario, the conservative Christian side that many times comes out this way. I got saved. That's it. That settles it. Don't talk to me anymore. I got mine. Well, are you seeking after God? Seek. I already got it. Uh, well, I mean, uh, are you hungry for more? More of what? I got all of Jesus when I believe. Oh, okay. More of the Spirit? Hey, I got all the Spirit. I, what do you mean more? Didn't mean to offend you. Well, don't mess with my salvation. I'm saved. You hear? Oh, okay. You're saved. Haven't experienced anything since, hardly. They almost get that attitude. Because it's all back there. They never talk about the present tense. And many times, not all the time, they live in a constant defeat, subnormal Christianity in the present. Not saying any other group can't do that, but it's just what I've observed, being around those various traditions. Now, I want us to look at the good news of present tense salvation. Salvation comes in three tenses. I was saved in the past from the penalty of my sins. I am clear, and you need to be clear, Jesus Christ took care of your sins at the cross, and when you put faith in him, that is forever finished. God has collected all warrants for your arrest. He nailed them to the cross. That problem has been removed. The sin that would have condemned you to hell forever has been removed. And there's another tense of salvation. It's the tense that's coming in the future that someday us folks with bad backs and wore out bodies and people over 50, that we can't wait to get a new body. See, some of you young bloods are still in love with the one you got. You wait. There will come a day you will long for a new body. It, it will look good because gravity is going to do things to your face you've never dreamed of. And your bones are going to ache. And uh, uh, so we're longing for that future installment of salvation when we get a redeemed, glorified body forever. Wonderful. But I talk about the past and the future. Is there anything in salvation that deals with me living in a mortal body in the present? Or was I saved to be miserable and defeated? Uh, I started Valley Bible with a burden for miserable Christians, not unsaved people. I really didn't. I was a Bible teacher. I'd been teaching at a college. I was not an evangelist. I was willing to knock on doors. But what I was burdened about as I taught at a Christian college was how many defeated Christians I met. And we're all saying, I got saved. And then 
Three weeks after I got saved, I fell into sin maybe, or I still struggle with an attitude, and everything was not what I did that night. All the sins were forgiven. It was great. But when I faced temptation two weeks later, when I succumbed to it, I was disappointed. I didn't think I'd be tempted like I was before. And you get a bag load of frustrated defeat and miserable believers. And I thought, God, this is not good advertisement for salvation. What makes another believer miserable is hard to give away. Join me. I'm miserable. You need it. You need the abundant life. I don't like Christians or the church, but you need to get saved. Why? Well, you won't go to hell. You'll feel like hell in the meantime, but you don't go to hell. Let's just tell it like it is. Instead of seeing a Christian that, they're like that, you said, man, they're fanatical. Why? They've got joy all the time. They're, they're excited about God. They'll get over it. They just haven't had any trial. They haven't met any of the deacons I've met. <laughs> you know, that's what we're kind of thinking. They'll get over it. They'll get over it. You'll get in and say, yeah, I'm saved. You want to make something of it? <laughs> and it's why... I ache for the Christians I've met that I don't want what they've got. They don't have what I want. I'm trying my best not to get what they've got. It's a bad case of distemper. They've got a cold somewhere. I want to go out boiling. And I keep hearing my Savior say, don't cool off. Fan into full flame, Timothy. Stir up your gift. Stay hot. Not the first year you get saved, the whole journey. Yeah. Now, we're going to start this journey, and I hope you, do you have your Bible open? To Romans chapter 5. You should have been there. <laughs> and we're going to go quick, and I'm going to read, I'm going to let Paul and the Spirit preach, okay? My notes are for you, and I've outlined what I think this says, but follow the text. The text is inspired. The preacher isn't. The text is infallible. The no turn. All right. He says in Romans 5, 12, he's wrapping up what we got in salvation. And in Romans 5, 12, through the end of the chapter, he says, there's only two men in history, Adam and Christ. In Adam, the human race is condemned because we sinned in Adam and we fell in him. And with Adam came death, disobedience, condemnation. He says, now when you become a believer, God transfers you into Christ, the last Adam, another head of a race, a race of new kinds of people. And in Christ, there's no condemnation. It's the end of death. It becomes righteousness and peace. So he's saying, you've been joined to Christ as you were joined to Adam. In Adam, you were condemned. But now that you've been joined to Christ, the new living head of his people, you are in a status of righteousness and life and peace. Now, he develops this in chapter 6. In verses 1 through 10, he goes on to tell you the implications. He said, since you've been joined to Christ, 
You have been immersed into his death. Verse 3. And you've been immersed into his burial and in his resurrection. So that you've been raised up in verse 5. United with Christ in his death. We will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self or our old man. Going back to what we were when we were in uh, Adam. Our unsaved condition. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That is Christ. So that the body of sin might be rendered ineffective is the idea. We still have a body, but the body as an instrument of sin has been rendered powerless. That power has been broken. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So he develops the argument that now that God sees you in Christ, you have died to all the obligations you had to sin. Death is the ultimate obligation and penalty. We need not pay anymore. We have died in our substitute. Now he says, I want you by faith to do two things. And I like the old southern translation of the King James. You got to reckon on it. Verse 11. NIV makes it New English. Count yourselves dead to sin. Oh, King James says, reckon yourselves to be dead. I reckon so. You believe it. You know this now. Now I want you to respond to it by faith and start reckoning yourself in two areas. I reckon I am alive to God the Father. I count on it. This new relationship gives me a living moment-by-moment access to God the Father. Sin made me run from him. Sin made me hide. Now, I'm going to count on the fact I'm in Christ so much that I'm going to start acting alive to the Father. Someone has said it's like paying attention moment-by-moment with the Father. I'm living out my life before the Father. But what am I doing with my body in sin? Ah, While I'm reckoning myself alive, that's positive. On the negative side, I reckon that my body is dead to sin. It didn't say sin was dead, but I'm dead to it. I take a dead man's response to sin, like a corpse. One thing about in the cemetery, there's little sin going on. It's hard for a corpse to do anything wrong or right. But you see, I'm dead and alive. I'm alive to God, to serve him. But I'm dead to sin. When sin says, I want your body to do this deed, my attitude is, you don't understand. I died with Christ for that sin. I'm no longer an available instrument to carry out your appeal to me, for I'm dead with regard to the wishes of sin. But I'm alive to do the will of God. I'm alive to have fellowship with God. That's what he's saying. Then he says, after the reckoning, you need to yield your body to God. As you yielded your body to sin, now start making that yielding is put yourself at God's disposal. It's an attitude. Here, God, I'm at your disposal. 
I reckon that I'm alive to you. I'm unavailable to the sin principle. And by the way, you've got a body now. Isn't that what he says in Romans 12? Give God your body through a renewed mind. We know what you're doing because we know what you do in your body. Don't say you just gave him your heart and we never see your body. Your body comes with the heart. So he says, by faith, by faith, you must reckon that you have died with Christ so that you act alive to the Father, unavailable to sin, but available to God. Now he says in verse 14, by the way, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Who is he talking to in verse 14? Wait, who? Believers. What kind of believers? Just believers, huh? He wants them to know that uh, being in Christ, they are not under law. The law cannot produce righteous behavior in believers. And law... To quote Daniel Webster is this. Uh, Law has penalty. And Daniel Webster used to say this. Law without penalty is just good advice. Do you get it? Let's let's do it this way. Uh, You're driving out here. The speed limit says 55 miles an hour. And you're going 70 miles an hour because you're late for church. You have a spirit-filled motive to be there. And uh, so you um, get pulled over, and uh, you tell the officer that uh, you appreciate the advice of the state of California. (laughs) And you like the recommendation, and uh, may they keep their signs in good order. And, And then you say, and I was going to church. And he says, well, well, good. Uh, we'll only charge you $5 a mile for every mile over the speed limit you went. Because you see, that's not a recommendation. That's law. And when you break the law, there's penalty. And when the believer is put under law, he always lives with the coming penalty for failing to meet up. So he says, we're not under the law. Now, he just kind of leaves you hanging on that. Don't worry. He's going to develop it in chapter 7, a whole chapter on it. But he goes on in the rest of the chapter to say, if you yield yourselves to God, you're going to be slaves to righteousness, just like you were slaves to sin. And this kind of love slavery will produce holiness, and you'll begin to experience what eternal life is all about. comes to chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law. This is the law of Moses, not California driving law. That the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. The illustration is taken from people under the law of Moses. The only way you could rightfully get another marriage partner was for the first one to die. Any other means would be punishable by death. 
would be adultery. And so he's saying, hey, the way a woman in a miserable marriage could be married and not sin is for her husband to die. He only needs to watch what he eats. <laughs> so then in verse 4, the application So, my brothers, you also died to the law. Now, the law didn't die, but you died. And that's what he's saying in chapter 6. We died with Christ. And in that death came a liberation from law kind of living. My brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God's people live by means of the spirit and not by law. No kind of law. I want to give you an example of what law tries to do, even man-made laws. Look at Colossians chapter 2. There are many churches that are many Mount Sinai's. They've got more laws than Moses. We got a law for everything. I grew up with churches that uh, we had more laws. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. And we always knew how the women ought to dress. Always pick on the women. I always see a weak church when we're always trying to straighten up the women. You do that to men, they'll leave the church. They won't put up with it. So we abuse the women. And man, we knew what color, they couldn't wear lipstick. And they couldn't do this, and we couldn't do that. And every group has got its own little list. And listen to what he says in Colossians, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world... Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were aesthetic things. Everything was, don't touch that, you'll be unclean. Don't drink that, you'll be unclean. All this kind of stuff. Watch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The Apostle Paul never wrote one scripture in the Bible forbidding you to eat or drink anything. Look it up. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Ah, he wasn't forbidding their eating and drinking. He was forbidding them stumbling the brother. If that restrains what you eat and drink, fine. It may involve a lot more than what you eat or drink. But Paul had no qualms about what they ate or drank because he was not consumed with basic foolish kinds of things. He said, if I can get people under the spirit, I don't have to worry about telling them what to eat and drink. And the church wastes all this time. Do you drink? Don't you drink? What do you drink? Do you do? It, why don't you just mind your own business? The Spirit of God can help them figure it out. He helped get them out of sin. He can figure out what we could eat and drink. 
You can't believe how much ink has been spilt and judging of one another because we like to put people under our law list. Because if it's not Moses, it's us making law. And many churches are as miserable because you can't live under law without being a lawbreaker because you can't keep the law. The law is good. The law of Moses was wonderful. But notice its effect on sinners. Watch this, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Our time today spent in God's Word to encourage you to bring you truth for today. If you have questions or comments about our time together, we would invite you to write to us. You can either visit our website and drop us an email, write to us via U.S. mail, or give us a call. Another way to reach out to us with your questions would be to simply record them on your voice memo app on your smartphone, and then email that audio to tftquestions at valleybible.org. Our phone number is 855-833-9864. Our website, truthfortodayradio.org. And if you're writing to us, the address is 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. If you have questions about the ministry of Truth For Today and how we are funded to air on this radio station, we would love to talk with you. We are listener-supported, quite simply, and no gift is too small, no gift is too large. Whether it's a one-time gift or a monthly gift, it all goes back into the radio ministry, ensuring that it airs on this radio station. So would you consider that as you reach out to us here at Truth For Today? And then we invite you to come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard.